Welcome back to Part of the Story, Red Deer Public Library's official podcast. And today is our final Dear Mag in our series. And we are talking about three, well, new to our discussion books, certainly not new books. <laughs> um, and we have uh, Kirsten and Nicole joining us once again. Hi. Hello. So before we get into it, I'll throw it right over to you, Nicole. Sure. Uh, We just wanted to do a brief land acknowledgement before we start today's podcast. Uh, So in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge that we live, work, and play on the traditional territories of Treaty 6, the gathering place of the Cree, Solto, Blackfoot, Métis, Dene, and Nakota Sioux, located north of the Red Deer River. We also live on the traditional grounds of Treaty 7, the gathering place of the Blackfoot Confederacy, who are the Siksika, Kainai, Dikani, as well as the Aaxi Nakoda and Sutsina nations, the Métis people, and all those who make their home in the Treaty 7 region south of the Red Deer River. Thank you so much for that, Nicole. And before we get into our three titles, which do have a theme that we'll talk about a little bit before we get into the titles, but what's new at the Meg? What's new in the store? What's new for the exhibits? What's happening? So... Exciting news for the gift shop. We have Francis the Pig and the Rocket Teas and Mugs available. For mugs, stop in at our magnificent gift shop, which is right beside our front desk. The mugs are $17.48, and that's including GST. For shirts and sweaters, visit our website at www.reddeermuseum.com and go to the Meg's 50th anniversary tab where it will direct you to our Drumbeat Apparel shirts and sweaters page. And there you can place our your order. It's so exciting. Like your merch is so cool. I had a little look at it um, a couple of weeks ago. One of your compatriots sent it on my way and it's it's so exciting. I need to get that rocket, uh, that rocket tea. Like I really, I need it. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. We, our mugs have just been flying off the shelf. I like believe crazy. it. Yeah. They are like the so designs cute. are great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love them so much. And I'm so excited for everyone just to come in and just grab them and just have a little bit of a uh, red deer history. So yes, it, super, yeah. super exciting. And what kind of exhibits do you have going on at present? So we've got two exhibits on, um, really exciting, our body language reawakening cultural tattooing of the Northwest finally made it to the museum. (laughs) So it's um, got some new run dates. So it's open from June 14th until September 30th, if you want to come check it out. Um, It explores the rich history and artistry of Indigenous tattooing of the Northwest, um, and including piercings and personal adornment. So it's a really, really cool show. I really encourage people to come check it out. Um, And then in our main gallery our big gallery uh we're doing a bit of a temporary storage situation we're (laughs) doing some um hvac repairs in our collection space so we had to move out a bunch of the big furniture pieces from our collection so those are currently on display as kind of a behind the scenes look into our collection storage space so that's also available for people to come check out oh that's so fun it's super fun we found (laughs) lots of really interesting pieces in the back and we're like we got to put them on display now because we have space Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that body language exhibit looks really cool. So I really like I hope that people are encouraged to go down and check it out for sure. I plan to. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) It's one of my July goals. Perfect. Um, So 
before we get into each of the three titles, um, I noticed that they do have a bit of an overarching theme. Does one of you sort of want to speak to the overarching theme and, and how you've chosen these particular titles to highlight today? So our theme for our last podcast is around Indigenous people and Métis. And so you'll see that in the three books that we chose, um, the top, the titles are Footsteps in the Snow, The Red River Diary of Isabel Scott, and Blood Upon Our Land, The Northwest Resistance Diary of Josephine Bouvier. And I'm so glad I pronounced that last name correctly. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last one is These Are My Words, The Residential School Diary of Violet Pachines by Ruby Slipperjack. They all sound very interesting. Again, I was afforded these lovely notes by our guests today because otherwise I'm just not familiar with the Dear Canada series, but I've loved getting to know the books through you both. So I'm really excited for our conversation today. And it looks like we're kicking things off with Footsteps in the Snow. Awesome. So the plot takes place between July 15th, 1815 and July 18th, 1816. And it begins on board the Prince of Wales ship. And it starts with Isabel, who's 12 years old. And her family consists of her little brother, Robbie, who is nine, her older brother, James, who's 15, and her father. Her mother sadly passed before the family could actually get on the ship to travel to the New World. But they're traveling away from Scotland and Isabel finds her mother's diary and decides to keep it and carry it on for her. Mm -hmm. Now, the Earl of Selkirk, the Hudson's Bay Company had granted him land in Rupert's land. And um, he had recu recruited men like Isabel's father to leave their country and settle in Rupert's land. And they were promised their own land and that the Red River Valley was in a fertile valley where they could farm. And Isabel's father ran home because she's recording this in her diary. And he was so excited saying that this is our chance to start over and become landovers and not live a life of servitude. So the first couple entries are just about her voyage over to Canada. However, when they get to Canada, the settlement at the Forks has been destroyed because of an ongoing feud between the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company, and also because of the hostilities of the Métis people. So we also see now that the survival of the early settle settlers was also in almost entirely dependent on the Indigenous people relying on their knowledge of hunting, trapping, medicine, all of that. And we see Isabel and her family and the new settlers struggle in the new world with its own challenges, with the weather, the unfamiliar terrain, and all of that. So they are promised, again, this beautiful new life, like, come over to Canada, it's going to be great. And they get here and no, that is entirely far from the truth. <laughs> Much more struggle than was probably sold and or expected. Exactly. So 
Isabel's father actually marries an indigenous woman named White Loon. And the family has to, and the family and the settlers have to keep moving south in the winter due to lack of food. So what is becoming very frustrating for Isabel and her family is that they don't ever really get to settle into their home. They have to keep bouncing back and forth. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it, I've I, like reading this book, my heart broke because it's like, will they ever get to just finally settle down and just build up their home? But every, things just keep happening and they keep bouncing back and forth. Oh, goodness. Yeah. And one thing that Isabel's father says is we thought we'd come to this land to be free but we're still being used by those higher than us. And there are some quotes here. He's regarding the Hudson's Bay Company. They probably understood that if we settled here, we could easily supply their fur traders with food that we ourselves grew. And eventually that would make the company, the Hudson's Bay Company, stronger than the Northwest Company. And then he's talking about the Métis people here. The new race of people coming from the marriages between the indigenous people and the French are creating a people who want to be known as a new people and a new nation, the Métis. And the Métis see us settlers as a threat to their new way of life. I imagine for that, like for the family coming over, Isabel's family, the idea that you're coming to sort of get land and farm and build a life, and then you get here and it's struggle and strife and you know nothing is easy and a company is sort of using you and they sold you lies to get you there to to continue what they were wanting to do I can't even imagine the level of struggle yeah and you're coming into the middle of all these rising hostilities and in between this uh feud between the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company and um some uh, things that were brought up in this book was the Pemmican Proclamation. Um, this was a 1814 degree, decree that was issued by Miles McDonnell, the governor of the Red River Colony, that forbade any export of pemmican or other provisions from the Red River Colony. It was claimed to be done to ensure that there would be enough food for the future settlers. But the Métis and the Northwest Company saw this as a direct sanction against them. So this furthered tensions between the two trading companies. So we see that just kind of adding fuel to the fire. And then, and we see this happen in the book with Isabel, the Battle of the Seven Oaks, which just where things kind of came to the boiling point. Um, This took place on June 19th, 1816. Um, 60 men made up of Métis and Indigenous people were meeting up to deliver pemmican to the Northwest Company canoe brigades when they were intercepted by the Hudson's Bay Company Governor Robert Sempler and 28 officers and employees. Fighting broke out and the Hudson's Bay Company was left with 21 casualties while the Métis only had one. It's These kind of books are so interesting and especially that you highlighted this one in particular because we know Hudson's Bay as, a, as the Bay, as a shopping center and Mecca. And in some ways it has always been sort of like a shopping type of thing, like a providing to the different places. But you don't realize the level of sort of 
strife and violence in early uh business in Canada that they have like a a governor and like what looks like you know a small army of people and you just you don't think about it in those terms when you're you know driving by a bar mall and you just see the bay sign on on the building it's so interesting and like we learn a little bit about that you know in social studies in the earlier grades and whatnot well maybe they don't anymore I'm not sure what (laughs) I'm very old um but I find it so interesting that like these books seem to never shy away from sort of the darker realities of these historical times especially when they are sort of looking at a children's audience but they're sort of being real I'm sure they're not you know, graphic and violent and, and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. But they're not saying, and everyone was friends and we all held hands and everything was perfect, right? I find that extremely interesting and very sort of responsible storytelling. Did you yes. have any thoughts about that? No, I completely agree with you. And um, it's, uh, and it, from Isabel's point of view, like she was she was she was there at the battle of the seven oaks but she wasn't like her and white loon were fishing but they were hidden so she was able to kind of you know she wasn't able she didn't doesn't go into the gore and like the details you know Mm -hmm. but she was able to just kind of recount it from a 12 year old's point of view and this is what happened and yeah so you're right you know they do and I think it's very responsible that they are able to tell that point of view and everything so because you're right they don't go over there and it's not all flowers and sunshine and this is you know they lived happily ever after like no this is what happened there were tensions there were battles you know it's it was really rough it was hard like it was yeah (laughs) that again sounds like such a good one you guys are always highlighting the best ones (laughs) I'm sure they're all good in their own way but uh, as a new person to the Dear Canada series, everyone that you have been highlighting so far, I'm like, oh, interesting. <laughs> like immediately. <laughs> um, yeah. So our yeah. next one is called Blood Upon Our Land. Yeah, so this um, takes place uh, December 31st, 1884 to November 20th, 1885 in, okay, Batouche, Batosh, okay, I, oh, Batosh, <laughs> the district of Saskatchewan, <laughs> and the characters are Josephine Bouvier, who's 12 years old, and her family consists of her Mushum, who is her grandfather, there's her father, um, Adrian, who's her older brother, and Armand, who's her little brother. And then there are some other characters that we'll get into. But Josephine's grandfather gifted her the diary, insisting that she passes on her stories, saying that if they're not told, they were disapp- they they will disappear. And if they disappear, so might their language and the Metis way of life, for all are connected. Uh, Josephine's mother had passed away two years prior and her father remarries Louise Pepin. Adrian, her father, and Musham have decided to stand with Louis Riel if the Canadian government refuses to respect the rights of the Métis people. 
they want titles to their river lot homestead and farms, but Ottawa has been ignoring their petitions. Her grandfather, Musham, also visits Chief One Arrow on the reserve. Ottawa expects the Cree to farm, which they're more than willing, but they need help, which they are not getting from the government. At this time, there's a lot of talk of resistance in Nicole, what's the Batosh? I'm sorry. I... <laughs> <laughs> um, so a news reporter was sent to Batosh from Toronto to report on the status of the Métis. A newspaper from the East are writing articles with headlines that read, Ripe for Rebellion, Louis Riel, once more advising a revolt. On March 17th, 1885 is when the, quote, fighting begins, but news came that the police were coming to arrest Louis Riel, so Josephine's father, Musham, and Edmund Swift Fox which is a boy that was living with Musham. They went to Clark's Crossing to cut the telephone lines to keep the police from sending any messages. And Gabriel Dumont took John Lash, who was an Indian agent, and William Tompkins, who was Lash's interpreter, as prisoners. Guns and ammunition were seized from the general store, and the church was now acting as their headquarters. On May 9th, 1885, the Battle of Petouche happened with Middleton's army. Josephine's home was set on fire after the soldiers ransacked it. Josephine, Louise, and Armand escaped to and watched the horror unfold in a, ca in a cave that was past Musham's cabin. And there's a quote here from the book that said, one soldier had a cooking pot on his head and was wearing Papa's finest coat and one the one that Mama embroidered. Chairs, the table, our dishes, all lay broken in the yard. Our mattresses and pillows had been cut open and feathers scattered everywhere. Her father and Adrian had been arrested. Musham had been arrested, but was released. Louis Riel surrendered. He was charged with treason and his trial began on July 20th, 1885 in Regina, Saskatchewan, where he was found guilty. On November 16th, 1885, Louis Riel was executed. He was buried in St. Boniface, Manitoba. His home, the Riel House National Historic Site, is available for people to visit June to September. Gabriel Dumont fled to the USA. The Canadian government never requested his extradition, and later in July 1886, he was pardoned. He spent the next few years traveling around the United States and parts of Canada. He finally returned to Batoche permanently in 1893, where he dictated two memoirs of the Northwest Resistance. He passed away on May 19th, 1906. Chief One Arrow, who was a signatory of Treaty 6, was arrested and incarcerated at Stony Mountain. He passed away on April 25, 1886, soon after his release. He was buried in the St. Boniface Cemetery. 
but in 2007, Chief Juanero was returned home to his reserve, and he was reburied on August 28, 2007. His last words to the Canadian government were, do not mistreat my people. You know, sometimes I feel like when we're talking about these books and the sort of weight of some of this history, I feel sort of remiss that I don't know these things, you know, and like, I do find it to be, you know, your personal responsibility to sort of look into your history and realize, you know, the land that we're on and the history of that land. And it just makes me feel like I have been remiss all of these years, you know, like, and I love the fact that a book that is sort of primarily for a, a child's audience, but, you know, adults can enjoy as well, are really taking a stand in terms of telling the history in a digestible way that children can interact with and sort of understand and move forward and then find more and different resources to continue on their learning journey. And mm -hmm. it does make me feel a little bit sad that I, you know, didn't read these types of things as a child and was sort of like further along in my own education. I think sometimes we as Canadians think that our history is like boring or like nothing's happened here and I don't know what the what the message is there or how so many of us have gotten that message but you hear these different things or or to you both who are sort of in it a little bit and and then have you know read a lot of things and have a different historical perspective than you know me a lay person um I just I find it sort of awe-inspiring that we have this type of history and when I say awe-inspiring I'm, I'm not saying like oh this great and wonderful history I, this like this history that is very serious very vast very different from I think a lot of us might think um generally speaking so I like that these types of stories are sort of accessible for you to get into and then further your education with other resources as you go along um I don't know. I just, this one is, is quite interesting. I'm, I'm very glad that you decided to highlight it. Uh, I noticed here you have a history and connection to Red Deer on this particular one as well, which you know is always my favorite part when you're talking about things. <laughs> yeah, so we, uh, we do have a bit of a connection to Red Deer. So we, we do have, there were Métis people in the area before uh, the Red Deer town site was established. There were uh, several Métis families who sort of had established um, a river lot system similar to what they have in the Red River Valley um, along the Red Deer River. Um, and we had two fairly prominent families. Uh, the Mackenzie family was was one of them. And you might have heard uh, heard name, that name more familiarly. Um, so Roderick Mackenzie and his brother Benjamin um, were farmers, ranchers, and entrepreneurs. They had set up a farm on a river lot off the Red River, uh, Red Deer River, not the Red River. <laughs> um, and they also operated a sawmill and a had a threshing machine, um, which was one of the first threshing machines that came to Red Deer. Um, they, you know, were putting up 200 tons of hay a day in the mill wow. in 1883, like, it was it was crazy. So they were the kind of the people, the Métis people were the ones that sort of cleared the area of what would eventually become the Red Deer town site. Um, not that they were doing that because they thought it was going to become a town. They were doing <laughs> it for themselves. 
Um, they had a ferry operation that they used to bring people across the river. Uh, they were freighters. They did land speculation. They did all sorts of, all sorts of interesting things. Um, and unfortunately, the Métis people weren't the, the people that you know white settlers wanted in the area. Um, and in the early 1880s, we have Leonard Gates, which might be a familiar name to us in Red Deer. A little bit, um, yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Um, he becomes the manager for the Saskatchewan Land and Homestead Company. And they've basically given him 180 acres of land around Red Deer River, um, the Waskasoo Creek area that he was in charge of. And his job was basically to sell off this land to to make a homestead to the railway to encourage railway traffic through the area to different settlers to come live there to businesses to set up shop and he basically ignored that the metis were there in the first mm -hmm. place and he comes in with his surveyor's map of the square parcels of land like we've all seen like the aerial grids of the square land right. or whatever and comes in and starts selling off pieces of land and not and disregarding that the Métis had already established themselves on those pieces of land already, um, because that's what his job was. It was he was supposed to bring settlers to the area, mm -hmm. um, and that unfortunately drove a lot of the Métis people away from their area, um, including the Mackenzies. The Mackenzies ended up moving away to Beaver Lake in 1890, um, where they were very successful. Roderick became the first postmaster there. He established a local school that they called the Mackenzie School, but they were driven off the land that they had cleared, that they were farming, that they were like surviving off of and you know, being successful with, which is a really unfortunate. Hmm. I imagine that um, the Mackenzie Ponds, for example, is named after the Mackenzie brothers or at least the family in yes. some type of way. Do we know, because they moved away from the area, do we know sort of like how that happened a little bit or not really? Um, I haven't gone into the news. There's newspaper records, I would assume, that mm. would maybe say um, they were quite prominent in the newspapers of the time. But I'm not entirely sure uh, like what was the tipping point for them to wanting to leave. Mm -hmm. um, but I would assume that if some guy came in and started telling me that my land wasn't mine anymore and selling it off to other people, I would get ticked off and want to leave too. Well, yeah. Like, again, that's yeah, you just see those parcels of land or you're sold them as a settler, like come to this area, it's by a river, you can farm, you can do whatever. And then mm -hmm. you would show up and be on someone else's land. Like yeah. whether the government sort of, you know, acknowledged that or not, a homestead yeah. was already there. Yeah, like if I came and was like, oh, here I get my my parcel of land and I come and it's cleared and there's a farm established and there's like a house mm -hmm. there, I'd be like, bonus I don't even have to do anything <laughs> yeah. but poor people who already live there who are like no this is I live here this is yeah. my home you can't just come in here and take it from me and then these settlers are coming in and being like but I have the paper that says I own this place now so it's mine it, it feels baffling in this day and age like when you're looking at it through the 2023 lens you think like I'm going home today I'm sure when I get to my house I will unlock the door and be the only one there you know what I mean and yeah, a... we would never think, oh, like someone is just going to sell my parcel and I'm going to show up and someone new is going to be in my parcel. We would never, that doesn't cross our minds. No, no. So it, it's it's baffling to me that this is no what happened. And, you know, then the Métis people are getting pushed off of mm -hmm. off of these lands and, you know, they're. That they've uh, cultivated. 
they've cultivated, yeah, they're, they're building their entire livelihood off this piece of land. And now they're suddenly like forced to pack up and move. And the Métis people weren't necessarily signatories of treaties. So they're not guaranteed treaty rights either. They're sort of oh. just left on the outskirts to like find places to homestead, to land, to, like to live. I can't even imagine that level of hardship, like restarting in a place that you've already restarted. Exactly. It's, it's almost yeah, unfathomable, really. These, these families would have come from like the Red River area and they've mm -hmm. already made their way further west and they've set up and they're they're established, they're here and uh, they've got industry, they've got farming, like they've got all sorts of stuff that they've set up here and then to basically have like Leonard Gates come in and be like, nope, I'm selling your land. Yeah. You can't do anything about it because you don't have the fancy piece of paper that says I own it. It's like, it's literally baffling. It's mind boggling. And it's not that long ago. 1880 no. is not that long ago. No, in the, it's not. In the annals of time. <laughs> no, no, it's really not. Like, it's just a couple years before Red Deer became a town, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not much older than Red Deer. I find it absolutely fascinating in sort of the best and worst ways you know of it, yeah it's like that everything you, you can't believe that this happened kind mm -hmm. of shock and awe and yet we know that it did yeah so like that dichotomy of thought is like how could this but it did and it's I find it fascinating I just I can't even I don't know it's, um, it's wild it, it's hard for you to wrap your brain around as a person in 2023 it just is like there's yeah. no frame of reference, particularly where we're living. Like we live in a fairly stable place. We're in Canada. Um, we've been lucky to not have civil war and all of those things. Right. And so we don't, we really have no reference for this in modern day. And that's no. why it's so important to engage with literature that sort of opens up your perspective and encourages you to look a little bit deeper, look a little bit more and really understand how we came to be where we are here today in 2023 exactly oh my what's our final book today so our final book is these are my words the residential school diary of violet fashines by ruby slipperjack so this takes place from september 1966 to july 1967 violet is part of the 60s scoop She's taken from her home in Northern Ontario and sent to the city to attend the residential schools. Sorry, can um, we just pause you? And I don't mean to interrupt your flow, but for our audience that's listening, they might not be familiar with the term or the idea of the 60s scoop. Would one of you be able to just sort of summarize a little bit about what that means um, for our audience just before we move forward into her experience? Yeah, for sure. Nicole? Absolutely. Um, so the 60s scoop was, uh, a, I'm not really sure if it was a government program or if it was just the, the way that the government went about, um, doing things in the sixties, um, where they were taking, uh, students from the, uh, from the reserves and bringing them to city schools. So they would attend, they would live in a, in a home together in a residential school, but they were essentially sent out to. Um, be part of the public school system. So they went to school with like the white kids of wherever town they were. So it's a little bit different than the uh, the residential schools, you know, that we learn about uh, the beginning um, where they're, they're sent 
away from their reserves into a residential uh, home. Um, they're also schooled in that same home. This is where they were they were sent out to the city to be like, I don't know, incorporated into the white population of the school. Mm -hmm. So. Um, and this didn't just happen in the 60s. This uh, We call it the 60s scoop. We like an alliteration. Um, <laughs> but this happened up until like the schools closed in the late 90s. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Just a little bit of context for our listeners. Absolutely. So she's taken from her home in Northern Ontario and sent to the city to attend the residential school. So she lives at the school, but attends public school with the other white children. Um, this reflects on the experience experience of the author Ruby Slipper Jacks. Um, so it shows that she writes letters home to her grandmother and mother, but all are checked before they are sent and received. Um, she doesn't understand all the rules or the prayers or the white holidays. Um, she's unable to go home at Christmas because of a measles outbreak at the school. So she goes home for Easter instead. Um, so we won't go into a kind of a detailed dive into um, this book specifically, but um, I'll let Nicole go into just kind of the history and the connection to Red Deer and all that. Um, this was definitely a heavier read, so um, we'll just kind of give that uh, warning out. Definitely a heavier read out of all the Deer Canada books, so... Do you think it's heavier because it's um, written by a person sort of with firsthand knowledge of of what she's writing about? It's a fictionalized version, I imagine, but she still would have the firsthand experience. Do you think that that's why it reads a little bit differently, a little bit heavier? Yes, and because of the topic, mm -hmm. too, just... Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, especially with everything that is coming out of... Uh... And like in the media recently, you know, like the the Kamloops 215 and all the all the things that we're relearning. We already mm -hmm. knew these things, but all the things that we're relearning about residential schools and the impacts that they've been having, um, and in this era of reconciliation, it's a it's a it's a hard topic to go through, and you you don't wish this on anyone. Um, yeah, it's 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 a hard read, even mm -hmm. though even though what Violet experiences is probably on the lighter end of the spectrum of abuse that we know residential school survivors experienced it's still not it's not easy to read about the things that she's experiencing in this book and then to know that the author experienced very similar things and it's mm -hmm. basing it off of her own personal experience it, it hits really different yeah yeah um but for residents of red deer you might be aware that uh we did have a residential school located uh just outside of the town site of Red Deer was the Red Deer Indian Industrial School that ran from 1893 to 1919. Um, and it was located across the river from Fort Normando. So there's actually a lookout at Fort Normando where you can sort of see where the school used to be. Um, the school has um, come down. It's not standing anymore, but um, that's about where it was. Um, it was one of the first Methodist-run schools in Alberta. Um, we know that the Catholic Church was very heavily involved in running uh, residential schools, um, but the Methodists um, also, and the Presbyterians also ran schools as well. Um, so it served a wide variety of communities um, that were very quite far away from Red Deer. Red Deer didn't really have um, a band any closer than um, Musquachis, 
Um, so we served people from the school served students from the Louis Bull tribe and Samson Cree Nation, um, which is Masquachis, the St. Paul First Nation, Paul First Nations, apologies, uh, out near Duffield, uh, the Alexander First Nations near Morinville, the Saddle Lake First Nation, the Whitefish First Whitefish Lake First Nation, Frog Lake First Nation, and Sweetgrass First Nation from Gallivan, Saskatchewan, and the Nelson House Band from Manitoba. A huge land area huge 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 land area so you can imagine that you know parents this was a time before um, mandatory enrollment to the schools was part of the program so parents would voluntarily send their their children to the schools not not knowing exactly what was going to happen Mm -hmm. um so you can imagine that parents would have been kind of reluctant to send their their children so far away so far yeah to go to school so that was a little bit uh part of the reason why the school closed so quickly is because it was really hard to get parents to send their their children so far away um the other thing that's a little bit different about this school is that it was an industrial school as opposed to just a straight residential school so they did live on the same at the school the same place that they worked um but industrial school meant that they were also learning to become farmers essentially so they did farm labor on the working farm at the school they learned other trades um like carpentry and uh, fishing and all sorts of stuff um, to hope that they would become farmers mm-hmm. after they left school. Dangerous work, though. Dangerous work, yeah, yeah, not not something that children should be working on necessarily. Um, we did know that the school um, did have a fairly high death rate. Um, there was some very poor sanitation at the school early on. There wasn't much clean water. There was very poor ventilation in the dorms. You're cramming a bunch of students into like mm-hmm. really small rooms. Um, and the students did get sick. Um, and some of the illnesses that they caught were pneumonia and the measles, um, and tuberculosis, smallpox. And then at the end of World War One, they also contracted influenza. Mm. Um, so it was, it, was not, it was not a great place to be, not very clean. Um, and there was a small cemetery located on the school property, um, and a ground-penetrating radar survey in 2008 found the remains of 18 students who were buried there. Oh, but wow. four students also have a shared headstone at the Red Deer Cemetery um, because they died of influenza um, after the war. And because the whole school essentially caught influenza, there wasn't anyone who was well enough to bury them on the school property. So they had to have people come in and bring them to the Red Deer Cemetery so that they could be buried. So that's why there's four students who are not buried at the school. Oh, my. So it's a very, very tough, very tough uh, situation. And the school closed in 1919 because of the toll that the influenza was taking on the students and staff. And um, because of the such low enrollment rates, and they ended up opening a new school near Edmonton as kind of a replacement for Red Deer. And did that, you know, off the top of your head, how long the school in Edmonton? I don't was have the number. in operation. No, it wasn't. No, I don't longer have a though. It was longer than than what Red Deer operated, and it was. I guess it was an easier school because it was closer to more of the, the families, northern communities. The northern yeah. communities. So Red Deer was serving originally. Um, so very, very tough part of Red Deer's history, but it's important mm-hmm. that we acknowledge that, that, you know, this is part of our history. It happened, mm-hmm. um, and we're going to acknowledge it. Um, and one of the groups of people who are acknowledging that this happened and are making advocacy about it is the Remembering the Children's Society. 
and the society was founded in, in 2011 as a remembrance and advocacy group for Red Deer's residential school. So they raised money and they were able to purchase the gravesite at the school. The land that the school was on had been sold privately and they were able to buy back the parcel of land from the private owners um, where the cemetery used to be. Wow. Um, they also raised money to have the uh, grave marker uh, raised at the Red Deer Cemetery for those four students that were buried there. Um, so if you've ever been to the Red Deer Cemetery, if you go left off from the main gate, you'll see this big headstone um, with the names of four students engraved in it. Um, and if anyone wants to support the Remembering the Children's Society, they can purchase a uh, society membership, um, and those funds go towards advocacy work that the society is doing. Um, and they have a Facebook page if you're interested in looking them up and learning more about what they do. Um, so if you go on Facebook, it'll be Remembering the Children's Society. If you're oh, looking it up. Good note. Yeah. So they've uh, they've done a lot of um, really great work with the residential school um, and re in remembrance of them. Uh, in 2010, they hosted a ceremony at Carrywood Nature Center where the names of all of the students who attended the school were read out. And what was really special was that they had people who read the names of their students were from the bands the students were from. So all oh, these people wow. came and read out their own students' names, which was really, really poignant. Um, and in 2011, four grave markers that were left at the, uh, were still remaining at the cemetery, were accepted by the museum, by the MAG, um, on behalf of the Remembering the Children's Society. So we have these four grave markers on long-term loan. Um, we are the caretakers of these grave markers. We are not the owners of them. Uh, Remembering mm -hmm. the Children's Society makes the decisions about if they can be displayed, who's able to come in and see them, if they're allowed to be brought out. Um, and we do have people who come, um, it, they've been smudged recently. We had Elder Corky come in and smudge our grave markers recently. Um, and they are brought out for people in the community to come and sit in reverence with if they would like. Oh, wow. Yeah. So some sad history, but we're, we're glad that we are able to acknowledge it and we're not, we don't want to hide this away. It's true. Sometimes the heavier topics are the ones that don't get outwardly discussed or no. sort of brought up and these parts of our history you don't want to highlight sometimes you know the the default is to minimize or sort of hide that um but it's very important to acknowledge that the idea of residential schools also is not removed from red deer um it's a part of history basically across canada and we all need to really mm -hmm. reconcile with that and hold space for those who need it and yeah. it's it's so heartbreaking I've actually this is gonna sound odd I walk the cemetery yeah. a lot and uh so I've actually seen that particular grave marker and it is quite moving even mm -hmm. as you're passing by um to see that so I know it's a bit odd to like be in a cemetery, but I would encourage people to engage with that as well and and have a moment mm -hmm. of silence and and reflection. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if oh, just another thing that I think is interesting about Red Deer kind of not commemorating the history, but you know making the history known, um, we do have a remembering the Children's Day in Red Deer. Um, that date is June eleventh, um, and that is in honor of all of the children who attended the Red Deer Residential School, so. 
it's a an important date to remember definitely moving yeah, forward absolutely this has been a very heavy topic again because it is the idea that these things history happens away from us right mm-hmm. it's, it doesn't happen in our backyards it doesn't happen across the river it doesn't happen at at or near sites that we know say like Fort Normando for example right like we all have different memories I think of you know we go to Fort Normando and like what is it fifth grade typically and you have your outside day and and it's just that and I think that it is important that we highlight these stories and these histories that that others struggled and still continue to struggle based on what happened and the society how society came to be how today's society came to be right and it's it's just it's heavy and it's important and you know like I think it's easy to get a little bit emotional or feel like you don't want to talk about it or engage with it because it it's it's hard it's not it's not the fun parts of history it's not the the parts to be proud of right so i i think these are excellent stories that that you've decided to highlight here today and i really hope that uh people check them out or are sort of sparked by something in in these historical conversations that you're bringing to us to do a little bit of their own reading elsewhere through different sources and and engage in that way if anyone is interested in learning more about the red deer uh, residential school we do have research files at the mag um, if you would like to make an appointment to come into our reference library um, we do have those documents that you can read through and learn more about the residential school oh wow that would be a great opportunity to do some further reading and this is going to be a swift turn <laughs> <laughs> but um thank you both so much for for all of these conversations that we've had these last uh few months now I guess it's been since we first started talking all of these books are just amazing stories I love that this series exists I love that they're still popular you know like and I knew sort of that they were popular I I'm at the schools sometimes and you're helping with classes and you always see that one or two that is getting the next one off the shelf right but I didn't really have a frame of reference until our conversations um surrounding this you know you know that it's a little bit about Canadian history but again I was one of those people that is like how interesting can Canadian history be like how how is all of that right so Mm -hmm. I have to say that I was remiss in what I thought about um so much of this really um so I'm I'm really grateful for you both appearing here on the podcast these last few times and for highlighting this particular story or like this particular series and and these particular Mm -hmm. stories. So I I thank you for that. Well, thank you so much for having us. We've had so much fun and it's just, yeah, it's a lot of people, again, they don't really, uh, it's nice just to come on here and just talk about history and have someone just get excited about history, you know? So (laughs) I am that. And I had no idea that I was even that interested in history until (laughs) you both sort of brought up these different stories. I mean, you're sort of interested in history in passing, right? Most of us have that phase where we're like super focused on one part of history, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But for me, it was never Canadian history. But 
through all of these different stories that you've brought. And I loved that you have brought sort of like, what does that mean to Red Deer? What is that historical context for us locally? Um, I think it's really important and a really great way to ground all of these fairly big, you know, historical events and stories in something a little bit more like local and, and easier to wrap your head around, right? Because these are such big, big things. And history is so long, really, but also so short. I don't know. Like, it's just, it blows my mind. Um, I think that was kind of our goal with the podcast was that, you know, we we always say, you said earlier, like, you know, history happens away from us. It doesn't ever happen here. And I think that was part of our goal was, you know, to highlight that, you know, this is national history. This is Canada's history, but it was also Red Deer's history. Mm -hmm. I wanted to bring that more of a bite-sized local perspective which is fantastic and you know I think I feel about this way about the library a lot too sometimes I think to myself like would I use the library if I wasn't working at the library like would I think that the library was a place for me I don't have children you know this that and whatever you think a certain way about the different institutions of your city right and I was one of those people like oh the museum I like what they're doing but is that for me? I don't know. And then you don't really make the time to like really look into it. And you like see something cool that you guys are doing. And you're like, oh, that's cool. And then, you know, you get, I get to know you too, through this podcast and, and you highlight your great exhibits. And, you know, I was looking at your website and your sweet merch and just the idea of changing as the times go as well, right? The different types of merch, the different things to bring people sort of into the space so that they can engage with local history, engage with other exhibits. It's just such a great resource here in Red Deer and so accessible for our community. And it's just, it's really exciting to be able to highlight what's going on at the museum. And for anyone who was like me thinking the library's not for me or the museum's not for me, it is, it's for us all. And that's like the most exciting part of all of this, really. Exactly. Yeah. We're not just doing this for the fun of it, for the (laughs) the people that work here. We're not just doing this museum just for us. We're doing it for the community. And, and it's so like, it's so accessible. That's what's so great about it too. Like drop by with your family, go by yourself. Um, It's there's there's going to be something there of interest and I think that's the exciting part of sort of getting to know a little bit more about the museum so I definitely thank you both for coming on and sort of flipping it on its head a little bit about about what we think as you know when we're like we're adults it's not for us but it is for us because it's still exciting and to have that wonder and to see that new thing and to find historical context it's it's exciting no matter what age you are Exactly. Learning is for everyone at any time. So whether you're learning at the museum or you're learning at the library, like keep learning. You'll learn, <laughs> exactly. you'll learn some new stuff about anything. <laughs> I just, I love that so much. Thank you both so much for this series. We hope to do something in the future. So listeners stay tuned. We'll find something else to get excited about <laughs> historically <laughs> or otherwise. Absolutely. Um, so thank you both so much for this series of three and thank you to our listeners for listening um there are some titles available at the Meg gift shop still am I correct yes there are so we have the three titles that we discussed today and then we have uh prairie as wide as the sea the immigrant diary of Ivy Weatherall by Sarah Ellis and then an ocean apart the gold mountain diary of Chin Maylene by Jillian Chan and we have them for 12 20. 
Fantastic. And they're at the library. So any books that are not currently in the store at the Meg, come on down and borrow them here from the library because they are on shelf and ready for you. <laughs> so thank you both so much. I hope that all of our listeners and you both have a great summer. There are some great exhibits going on at the museum, some great events going on in our city around the summer. So definitely check that out. I'm sure you guys have a calendar of events. We absolutely do on our website. And, yep. And we have a calendar of events. So we hope that you all have a great summer and we'll see you in the, in the fall. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.